Welcome to the Strong Source Commodity Podcast. We are your hosts, Martijn Bron and Alexander Sterk. Dear listeners to the podcast about commodity Strong Source with the start of the edition number five. And we are very happy to have as our guest Boudewijn van Vliet, who has been a commodity trader for more than 20 years in respectable companies and now is an entrepreneur in the commodity business. I worked with Boudewijn myself in Cargill on the vegetable oil trading desk of Cargill in Amsterdam. And then at the same time, we moved to Geneva, to Cargill Geneva. I stayed in the vegetable oil business and Boudewijn, he moved to freight. And one of the things I recall (laughs) is that when we all arrived in Geneva, in the first week that we were there, he had bought a brand new, very expensive Audi A6 four-wheel drive station for himself. (laughs) And we were all very impressed with that, but it was a smart decision, perfect for skiing. And, Ah, uh, And the nice thing is everyone enjoyed that Boudewijn bought that car and that, was th- that he was so happy with it. And that's a good impression of people in Cargill that you want each other to be successful and enjoy the good life. Uh, welcome, uh, Boudewijn. <laughs> thank you very much and thank you for that introduction. Do you but, still uh, have the Audi? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, you I, I switched, switched. <laughs> I switched a number of models, but yeah, very still good. faithful to the brand. Very good, very good. I think the listeners are very much looking forward to hearing your introduction, your own story a bit, and then we will move on to all the questions and the conversations we will have along the way. That sounds like a plan. Very good. Tell us, so how did I end up in commodities? Yeah. And yeah, I think with the perspective of today and experience, I would say it was not a typical road into commodity trading. When I was almost finished with my studies, I got a job offer at a commodity trading advisor, and that is a specific sort of hedge fund that would be classified today. And the job was trade execution of whatever the computer models generated as buy and sell orders. Before that time, I didn't have a grand plan to go into commodities. And <laughs> Who did, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's few people who do. And I thought it, yeah, it would be a cool thing to do. And I also thought it made sense with the studies that I did and everything. So uh, I went for that. And as I said, it was a systematic trader. Computer orders would be generated. But the great thing of it, it would involve about 140 different futures markets in which those trades would be done. And not all of them were commodities, but a large part were. And from the kind of main commodities like soybeans and grains, but also pork bellies, timber, Japanese rice. So with hindsight, it was a great view of what was out there in the world. And as I said, it was not only commodities, there was bonds, FX, equity futures, everything that would be a future would be considered by the system. Now, I did that for a year and a bit, but however much I liked it, what's missing in it for me was the real trading decisions. And uh, that's really something that I aspire to. And it's one of those things you only know that when you miss it or (laughs) once you're in it. So I applied at two companies. One was Cargo, the other was a Dutch bank. I got the offer at the Dutch bank and not at Cargo, actually, because the last round, I didn't make it through the last round. I liked the job at the bank. Uh, It involved a class in which they had their in-house academy. So you got three months of exposure to all kinds of financial markets and the dynamics of it. And then I ended up in equity trading in a job which was market making and proprietary trading. And somehow at that desk, I gravitated towards the internet and telecom stocks. It was around the year 2000. 
yeah, that was at that time the hot commodity, yeah. so to say. Yeah. These things were volatile. Yeah. They were all over the place. And I got to trade the book that had all those shares in it. And then the dot-com crash came. And <laughs> you experienced <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, like, in preparation of the podcast, I looked back at the charts and they were all quite kind of the same. And actually, when I left there, they gave me this big printouts of all the stocks that I traded and they all trended towards zero. <laughs> so it was a bit of a wake-up call because I thought... I knew a thing or two about commodities from my previous job. And I just thought, well, it's so one-dimensional in, in equities yeah. because you can have perfect analysis of a sector and choose the best company or the best valued company in it. But if the whole P ratio of the sector you know, is divided by 10, you still mustn't mm. own anything. At that time, I decided to reapply at Cargill. And this time I got the job. Oh, nice. Yeah. What do you think made the difference? experience? Yeah, I think part of it, the experience. And it was not very typical at that stage for cargo for people to come in after five years of experience. It was the kind of company that likes them, still, the people still moldable. Because you uh, applied for a different job than at that time? or Yeah, it was kind of a similar job. Okay. It was in a different part of cargo, but technically it, it was more or less the same. And yeah, so that's when I really went into the world of commodities where you are part of a big team that does fundamental analysis in a big company that has a lot of information flow, which sometimes can be overwhelming as well, because with a lot mm -hmm. of information also comes a challenge of Challenging. Yeah, what information is relevant for the market and yeah. for trading it. Very good. But if you look at all these the futures that you trade, we often get questions from people like, hey, what are futures? What is it exactly? What can you do with it? Why is it useful? What is, in your view, the reason why there are futures? It's a very efficient product. And ultimately, it was invented in the agricultural space. And the reason was that crops would come off the field. And if they all would come at the same time to the market, there wouldn't yeah. be enough buyers. And they ended up dumping it in the river. So there was a, a need for a term contract where people could already kind of trade, forward. trade for forward delivery. The future contract in itself is a standardized contract which is cleared through a clearing exchange which takes away the counterparty risk and that is a very important thing in trading that counterparty risk is managed for some extent or for some physical commodity flows that is not possible because there's always a physical buyer and a physical seller but this futures contract is a contract that is standardized, it is accessible for everyone and not only for the people that are hedging, but also, for example, for speculators or investors or buyers or banks. Or So the fact that it's easily accessible, the fact that it's standardized and the fact that there's no counterparty risk, yeah, paves the way for high liquidity. And it's not a given that any futures contract that is being invented always has high liquidity, right? It needs to provide a function in the end as well. Yeah, I'd like to add a little bit to that. And this is a perfect uh, explanation, Baderijn, thanks. And this is also one of the things behind the podcast, is that we want to clarify how these things work. And your description is perfect. Now, what I would like to add to that is that futures are also essential for a throwing, thriving economy. And what do I mean by that? It's in essence, it's a risk management tool in order to, do, to conduct far forward physical business and manage risk. Yeah, so for example, a retailer... They want to have long-term certainty about the stuff that they put on the shelves. And producers, they also would like to have a long-term contract. But what do you know about 
the crop of the commodity or the S&D in nine or 12 months out. You don't know. So in order to mitigate price risk, you can establish prices basis a futures contract. So you can conduct a far forward trade and have certainty about your yeah. cost of raw material. And that enables economic activity following from that. Yeah, people can do marketing, supply chain goes, all these things. And farmers can make a decision about what they want to grow. And not maybe in terms of tree crops, but in crops like corn and wheat and soy. So that is something that is completely misunderstood very often. When you hear people from outside of the commodity industry talking about futures, they think it's speculation. But look, speculators are attracted due to the volatility and due to the ability to make money trading. But the essence is a product which is standardized and is a mirror of the underlying. And the mirror means that it correlates. Yeah, and, and, and what I'd like to add to that, speculation always is a bit of a dirty word for a lot of people. It just doesn't have a positive connotation. Mm. But I would like to argue that in a well-functioning market, mm. speculators are needed yeah. because they assume risks yes. that others don't want to assume or do not have the capacity or don't have the limits or credit limits to assume. And speculators can also be banks or hedge funds or private investors that say, well, at this price, I'd like to own exposure to this commodity. And at the same time, speculators can also be short sellers. That's another yes. dirty word, right? But it's an essential yes. thing in commodity markets. In the end, the futures contract is a, you always have a, against every buyer, there's a seller. So it's a zero-sum game. And, think, and then a question in between, does it matter then if it's a fiscal settlement or a financial settlement yeah. future? For you, because grains, of course, and Matif is, is, for example, fiscally settled. There needs to be some link. Not every market is suited for physical settlement, yeah. but as they were originally contemplated, yeah. there is a physical settlement, and that forces the convergence between whatever the contract is and the actual spot price. Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, it is a bet or a view, or you take a position on whatever the spot rate is at settlement. It doesn't yeah. mean that you need to hold on to it until settlement because you can buy mm. and sell it always. Yep. And it's fungible and it's standardized. So if you buy one contract yep. from counterparty A and you sell it to counterparty B, you have no remaining risk. So yep. it's very clean. I have traded only physically settled futures. I thought that is a better tool to reach cash convergence. So to have the true mirror between the physical underlying and the, and the futures. And with cash settled, you have yeah kind of a different model where you have some benchmarks from the physical market, which then determines the final settlement. But the disadvantage of physically settled market, and that is especially when they're not properly governed and monitored, is you have squeezes and corner. <laughs> <laughs> and some traders, speculators, have actually built their model around that. And I've experienced that often in the cocoa market. And that is why I struggled really making the transition from veg oil and trading CBOT, so Chicago Board of Trade, bean oil, which was very well governed. Now, it was volatile, but at least I understood it. And I knew that there was a mirror between the future and the physical. In cocoa, in the first months, I didn't understand that market because it was constantly squeezed by traders who knew the S&D of the exchange cocoa rather than global. And they squeezed bona fide hedges. And the word squeezing, I never heard with nine years trading vegetable. And then cocoa, that was the only word I heard. Explain to the listeners yeah. what you mean with the squeeze. A squeeze is basically that you say, well, 
okay, I'm going to own all exchange listed cocoa mm-hmm. in this case, exchange listed of the commodity. I'm going to own everything. Yeah. And I'm willing to take delivery. And then you have the bona fide hedgers who are short and who are not able to deliver any physical cocoa because it's in the hand of the long, nor have they the capacity to convert physical cocoa somewhere stored in a warehouse, maybe maybe here in Amsterdam, into exchange licensed cocoa because that is quite a difficult, a complex different. process. It's different quality. But you need to meet certain specifications, yeah. as Boudewijn said, according to the contract of the yeah. exchange. Now, that is very complicated, and many players, they, they don't want to get involved. They want to have a hedge, a bona fide hedge. So they assume that close to expiration, they can buy back their short from someone who was not interested to take delivery. But then guess what? <laughs> it was set up to smoke yeah. out the naked, as we call it, naked short. Now, there are all kinds of things you can say about this, whether this is a free market and speculation should be allowed. But in fact, if you read the exchange rules, it will say squeezing and cornery and tackling delivery of a product with the sole purpose to move the price is prohibited. And why is that prohibited? Because at the end of the day, it will kill the market because bona fide hedgers, they don't dare to hedge anymore. Therefore, the liquidity dries up, volatility increases, and what you then get no more far-forward business is conducted because people realize this is a Texas hedge. Yeah. I can't use the futures market anymore as a hedge. And that has negative consequences to the economy, as I explained. Ultimately, a market needs to have legitimacy and also yes. reliability. Yeah. You see you know, on the LME with the London Metal Exchange, yes. with I believe it was a nickel contract, that was a huge problem because it was a price spike. And in the end... I think the underlying reasons were a combination of a number of things, but in the end, the exchange had to scrap a lot of trades that had been done. And uh, once you get to that stage, then it gets messy because <laughs> there's but a the lot of collateral damage and yeah. there's a lo- there's a trust issue. Yeah. Yes. What is happening actually with the exchange now? Is it still thriving or is it... Uh... LME? I think they settled it, right? Yeah, they settled it. Yeah. That was an expensive settle probably. Yeah, it just... But it, as a market participant, you must be yeah. able to rely on yeah. what is written in the contract yeah. and also yeah. on spirit in which a market is traded. If you look at the history of commodity trading, there's a number of squeezes in silver or whatever. I don't have them in my head, but there's a number of classic stories. So it's as old as the commodity market, but it's a bug that in general has been fixed. What is then what you liked the most about the whole trading aspect? Is it the analytical part is it the deals is it the positions is it the excitement is it a combination of what, what, no, what? it's a bit of both and i think what's important to know for listeners is that people think about commodity markets and say okay i'm gonna buy this or i'm gonna sell that commodity because the price is going up or price is going down but in reality the bulk of trading in commodity markets is in the form of spreads and that's another layer or that's another number of dimensions that apart from the term structure the commodity market brings because you get spreads between delivery tomorrow and delivery in six weeks' time or in a year's time, which are different markets. If there's a shortage, the price now can be twice as high as the price in two months' time. And along the curve, you play certain time spreads. You have spreads between quality of commodities. You have spreads between what goes into a conversion process and comes out of a conversion process, because most commodities somewhere along the line get converted or get processed. And another big effect in commodity markets is the substitution between commodities or between different qualities of commodities. Mm-hmm. 
in the end, everything, you have a price, but the function of the price is to establish an equilibrium. And one of the saying in commodity markets is the best cure against high prices are high prices because it triggers all kind of substitution effects. It kills demand, incentivizes more production, mm -hmm. and all those things are there to establish the new equilibrium and to bring the price back to sustainable levels. And it goes both on the upside and on, as on the downside. Yeah. And that's also what I wrote about a couple of times is we were trained in making our fundamental S&Ds. And the nice thing is always to have an S&D with a big deficit or a big surplus. And when you present that S&D, you know that that will never materialize yeah. <laughs> because the price will prevent it. But the price move to prevent it, to prevent a structural deficit or a structural surplus, that's a trading opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. There's these feedback loops all over the place. And to answer your question, what triggers me in it? What did I like about it? I mean, first of all, you have a lot of different kinds of commodity traders. You have the very fundamental S&D driven traders and you have the more kind of momentum driven traders, which they look at what are trends in markets and, of course, what are the main things driving this market. But I would put myself in the second category, more momentum driven, more... If I look at myself more, if something happens in this part of the business, it implies that that price must go up, that price must come down. And if you have a habit of making those calls and effects or see those calls and effects, you can have a relevant position in a market. Yeah, another thing which ultimately drives the success of a trader is how you see the trade-off between risk and opportunity. So ultimately, how a commodity is priced, what the potential up or downside is, is important input for a trade yeah. and very often in the form of spreads you can have an opinion without expressing whether you think a price goes up or down you can say well i think if contract a and contract b are this close together it's probably unlikely that spread can come in much more but conversely if something happens which is quite likely the spread will blow out so you have a skewed risk reward opportunity and that's the kind of thing that as a trader you can make the most money on, I would say. If with you, acceptable risk, that is. Yeah, with acceptable risk. We haven't had a real cowboy in the podcast yet. I think uh, most of the traders that we've spoken to uh, yet are also looking very much at the risk and the downside. And I think that what you say, you know, there are different types of traders within the companies. If you look at teams that you worked in, you managed, how does a, an ideal trading team look like for you? With the different characters, they're all commercial guys, uh, ladies, all kind of different characters. How would you manage a team like that with the traders? Well, it goes back to a more fundamental question, whether you should trade in a team or not. And, and also there, there's, there's one, different flavors. If you look at a company where I worked at Dan as well, Cargill, there is that very much a team effort, but you're part of a system. And within yeah. that team, everyone has his specialty and expresses opinions. And of course, the more senior and successful you are, you know, the more your opinion carries weight. I learned a lot about that. For me personally, at some stage, I also found that quite difficult to trade in a team because the risk is that you start trading in committee and then that you end up not making decisions or making the wrong decisions or you lack the punch or you are at the risk of lacking the punch of making the right decision. And in trading, which ultimately rule number one is self-preservation and not blowing up, that can be a real risk because... If something goes wrong, there needs to be someone, and it doesn't mean that the team can't have such a person, that pulls the ripcord and takes out the parachute. Yeah. Because it's just 
part of the job that sometimes things don't go right. So for me, when after my years at Cargill, first in grain and oil seas, after that in dry freight, I moved to a bank and that's where, yeah, here's your computer and there's your margin account. And uh, there wasn't any real infrastructure to build on and it's every man for himself. How was that to work in? You know? Well, it, it was, I found it very refreshing because there's nowhere to hide. And luckily I had a good start and I managed to be successful in what I was set out to do. But it's also lonely. There's no perfect world yeah. in that respect. The fact that you're there out on your own and uh, yeah, you got nowhere to hide is great. Can you know a... more when you are in a team? Can you know more about, because if you're in a team, everybody can speak to market participants in whatever market you are. And if you're just by yourself, with your own S&D, with your own... I mean, it's not that you do, you're not isolated in the world, right? No, you got okay, your you brokers, you, got, uh, people, right? you speak to other market participants. But I actually, for me, as a person, I often found the wealth of information that you would have at a big company not necessarily easier or not mm. necessarily leading to better decisions. Mm. But that's for me, right? Mm. In the end, and that's an important thing that I learned at Cargill, in the end, you need to identify you know, what are the main drivers of a market. Mm. And it doesn't have to be constant. Mm -hmm. It's not always the same. But out of 50 or 100 possible triggers or drivers, there's always a handful that are really important. And that's what you should focus on. I guess, you know, information overload is a thing of the current world anyway, so mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to learn to deal with that. And then you went from the fiscal product to freight. Yeah. How's the world of freight? World of freight is a whole different world. The Red and Sea now is a hot topic, right? Yeah, so, uh, and, and so ultimately, if you think about commodity markets, a lot of them are produced on a different continent yeah. than on which they are consumed. So transport is needed. Yeah. Ocean transportation goes in the biggest possible vessels. Yeah. And yeah, it was by coincidence, or yeah, you have to ask you whether coincidence exists, is that I ended up there within Cargill. It's an exciting market. It, it technically, it, freight itself is not a commodity. You have mm. ships, you have owners of ships, and then you can rent ships. You can rent the capacity from an owner yeah. and then rent it out to someone else. So in itself, it's not a commodity, but you can trade it as if it was a commodity. Mm. But like every other commodity, it has its own story and its mm -hmm. own S&D, its own seasonality. And what is specific about freight is that it ultimately is a capacity market. The number of ships that yeah. are there is given. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, they're building ships and they're gradually it's delivered. Yeah. So you <laughs> but what can happen in the supply of ships, they, those ships can be on the wrong part of the world or they can be positioned wrongly. Mm -hmm. So there can be uh, many ships, but if you need one tomorrow in Rotterdam and they're all on mm -hmm. the other side of the world, you have a problem. It being a capacity market so means that it's largely driven by demand. And then you get dynamics. Either demand is steady, say that's a normal market. When the demand gets a bit higher, then suddenly everyone wants ships in the same ports and stuff. And then you start to get congestion, as they say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just right at the time that the supply is most needed, mm -hmm. it starts to clog up. So you get this effective market that spins out of control eh, until it's all solved and then it you know, comes in again. And on the opposite side, and we saw that, for example, in 2008, you had a booming economy, booming market. You already had the credit crisis, which was creating a bit of uncertainty, but the rest of the markets were still hunky-dory. And you had the Winter Olympics in China and everyone would say, yeah, after the Winter Olympics, the demand is going to come back. And that's why the Chinese don't do anything now. 
And then it was the end of the Summer Olympics and just nothing happened. And that's when the market completely crashed. And then, yeah, if there's oversupply, the price just goes almost to variable costs or almost to zero. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the most extreme events then that I experienced in commodities was that the market for you know, the largest vessel lost 98% of its value in mm. three months. Which is but is capacity then traded, basically? So you basically take a long position in, in capacity on a ship going from... Yeah. Shanghai to Rotterdam. Yeah, so what the physical part of the business would do, they yeah. could buy a rent a ship for a year and yeah. then make a one trip and then another trip and another trip. So and try yeah. to get a margin in between, or they could sell trips. They could promise to make trips to people yeah. and then create a short position and then rent the vessel once they need it. But how that market is also structured is that, and that was most of my playing around, is that you have a derivatives market, mm -hmm. call it the futures market for argument's sake, in which people can trade on the basis of a standardized daily yeah. published index and cash settle because you, you cannot settle yeah. in, in, yeah. in, in OTC a ship. Or no, it, it started out as OTC and largely clearing came in. And then after 2008, when the market crashed, I think before that we were pushing for clearing and we got it up to 30% of the market being cleared. And after 2008, it was 100% cleared because the counterparty risk had been just devastating companies and that's how it actually became a future because yeah. it was 100% cleared. You call it a paper market. Is it a futures market or is it? Yeah, futures market in the sense that it's a standardized contract mm -hmm. that is centrally cleared. Mm. Yes, it was not traded on an exchange. Efforts were made to get it on exchange. Yeah. So, now, yeah. What I understand uh, is that when you were trading freight within Cargill, you have access to large shipments of the commodities that the boats are taking, right? Like soya, for example. But I believe iron ore is an extremely important market uh, for freight, correct? Yeah. Now, then you moved from Cargill to the bank, and to the to, to city. How did you deal with having potentially less access to that type of commodity? Yeah, I mean, first Ship of all, I, what I gravitated towards was really the financial trading or the paper trading, the, the trading of the standardized contract oh. that would be used as a hedging tool. But it is driven by the underlying. It's driven by the yeah. underlying. Yes, absolutely. So if your question is, okay, you know, yeah. first you're in this wealth of Correct. information, right. you see shipments, you see who gets you what nomination for a ship. Right. You hear from the big trading entities in the franchise where you sit, the physical. Yeah. You know, now within brackets, but you have proprietary information about trade flows. Yeah, so that's one yeah. of the data points. Yes, so, so, right, if you're, yeah. so if you're then out on your own, you don't have that. Yeah. But still, yeah, they all show their hand ultimately because mm. if they think the market is, if suddenly three big shippers who usually get the biggest part of the flow yeah. <laughs> through their hands, if suddenly one morning they all show up on the buy side, I don't need to <laughs> yeah. know, be within cargo to understand that something's exactly. happening there. Yeah. And But again, it's one of your data points. Yeah. I'd say if you're on your own, you get more resourceful and in that being on your own, of course, gives limitations, but it also, yeah. Yeah, I find it very interesting to hear you, where you speak about trading by committee, which you may have on a trading desk, and being on your own, which gives you a feeling of, yeah, the, I'm not distracted by someone else and I can make my own call. At the same time, what this is also important for our listeners, you need to figure out what your character is and in what environment you thrive. Now, for me, it was the camaraderie of a desk. So when times were tough, I felt still that I was enjoying my job because I did it with my 
friends that I really felt like, okay, guys, we go through this together. When you go through hell, keep going. Huh? And that camaraderie is something that worked for me. You said sometimes you can feel alone. Now, when you were in a shit show, how did you deal with that alone? Let me, yeah. before I answer <laughs> that question, because I know it's, you know, it, it, it's an important, it comes with the territory. And I would advise anyone who wants to have a career in commodity trading, don't pin your hope on any one commodity because ultimately you know, life will take you wherever it will take yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I think working at one of the big commodity trading companies where you're in a team, where you learn the trade is absolutely necessary step in, in anything that I traded you know, after I left my initial commodity company, mm -hmm. Cargill then, is I could only have understood it because I know what it is to be running a conversion plan yeah. uh, to be dealing with physical flows where always something goes wrong. Mm. And then ultimately it was the whole experience in shipping, which was on a big physical shipping desk. Mm. So it is a necessary sh step, which I 100% enjoyed because it's that camaraderie. It's mm. like being together in the trenches, right? Yeah. It, it just creates a bond and mm. I still have a lot of good friends from that period. Now, to your question, so yeah, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with those downturns? And first of all, it's also one of the pitfalls of commodity trading or trading in general, right? If it doesn't hurt to lose money, you're never going to be good at it. Mm. So there's a level of connection to your emotions that is necessary. Now, everyone has ups and downs in his PL. Everyone, ultimately, we're, you know, we're all animals, right? There's a great book that I can recommend later on on that, right? Ultimately, there's this greed and fear, these cycles of risk-taking and risk-averseness. Ultimately, it's how you deal with that. And ultimately, you have to deal with it yourself to channel those emotions. Now, on a technical side, one of the parts of survival is if a trade is wrong, mm. You have to stop out of the trade. Yeah. You have to deal with it. You have to take your medicine. It yeah. is never easy, mm. but it's extremely cleansing and liberating yeah. once you've gone through it. Yeah. Because until you've done it, you're in a cycle of fear and fight <laughs> or flight and all that. You just can't think straight. Yes. And so it's a necessary cleansing step. And the opposite of it is once you have, you're hitting the lights out and you're having successful trades, it's only human that you start to take more risk, yeah. you start to be uh, more <laughs> relaxed about risk. And that, of course, is like, what is that? The hubris comes before the fall. So I find that extremely fascinating yeah. from a biological yes. or human point of view, that cycle keeps happening. And then you know, it doesn't matter where there's AI in the game mm -hmm. or all that. Ultimately, decisions are made based on emotions. Ultimately, the market is a herd. You have to deal with that. Yeah, it's a fascinating how you, uh, you describe it. You deal with it in different ways. You can read certain books, like, for example, what I found a fantastic book, which is Bible of most traders, the reminiscences of a stock operator. But also, the funny thing is, I'm not superstitious at, at all, but I recall a small period where I was wearing my lucky shoes in Geneva. <laughs> Seriously. How did your lucky shoes look like? With yeah, that? They, they I are, just found uh, yeah, they <laughs> are the, the loafers, the, the classic American loafers. And I wore those and I was on a very good wave trading CBOT and I kept wearing those shoes. It's not a joke. I really did it. <laughs> <laughs> what happened with the shoes? At the yeah, no, trade? I mean, uh, at some stage, they weren't my lucky shoes anymore, right? And like Bardewine said, the, when you're on a good wave, it is really fantastic. It's yeah, you're on top of the world. You feel like you have uh, outsmarted the market. It's extremely rewarding, especially when a trade 
maybe starts a bit difficulty. So you have the pain first and then the gratification. Uh, those are often the best trades. Yeah. yeah. And then you need to be very humble and realize that maybe it was the shoes and maybe it was not you, right? So you need to be very humble. But I also find very interesting is that you have worked in large corporates. And so after Cargill, was City, then Mercuria. And then you started your own shop. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk about that? It was kind of a natural progression for me as I you know, came out of the initial part of the trading career and then went trading at the bank from OMPNL and Mercuria was the next station, but you know, more of the same. By that time, it, it had become so individual mm-hmm. that, and I would say I traded in such an efficient way in terms of margin and that kind of thing that I, I saw the possibility to do it within my own company. It was really built around me, and of course, and ultimately, yeah, you, you try some other things, but the main thing, it was built around me. So it, it was, in a way, it was you know, a logical third step after mm-hmm. the bank, the big trading house, and then doing it for my own account. Yeah, again, it was quite individualistic. Mm-hmm. And there's one thing, being your own manager, and there's mm-hmm. another thing if you then start yeah, <laughs> taking some other traders in your team mm-hmm. and then maybe do other commodities and stuff. Yeah, I would say it's a different thing. For me, that whole managing of trader thing, it's not something that I find myself very good at. So there were other people joining you? Yeah, I mean, here and there, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, but do you see that trading is, of course, different than managing, right? Is a good trader, a good manager, we've discussed it before, it's not always the case, but also maybe you have much more fun in actual trading, right? Where you're so good at, where you spend all these years in. But setting up a business, of course, I can relate to. But looking at, besides the trading now, you had to trade with your own money instead of the bank's money, etc. How was that different? Well, it's different different than like in any trading, you start small and then if you are successful, then naturally you grow it a bit. But I must say, uh, whenever I traded, it always felt as if it was my own money. Also, if I was working for a bank or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And for me, in the end, in all those different jobs, ultimately money is the kind of scoreboard, right? But ultimately it's a game and... You're good at the game and then your money grows and in a way that leads the way as well because if you're not good at it, that's a clear signal that they shouldn't go on. Well, actually, if you look at this, that, the, what you say about scorecard, do you think that is vol- what was the, if you look at the scorecard, was, is volume an important when you do a deal that like it oh, was a big deal, big volume or does it, do you think it actually doesn't really matter because yeah, a big deal or a mid-size or a smaller deal would have given you the same satisfaction? It's difficult. For me, it's talking for myself, in being an efficient trader and not doing crazy things, you never take massive positions because that's a risk that you cannot oversee. It doesn't mean you cannot take certain bigger positions if you really have strong conviction, but you always have to think in terms of self-preservation and what happens if. And you can have a great analysis of a market that once every so often, it's just going against you and it becomes unbearable and you have to... Stop out. Now, if you have a position that's out of control, that that's a problem. No, it's yeah, very sure. important. Also, this is about style. You have traders who shout on the trading floor, go big or go home, right? Which I don't find very constructive, to, especially to young traders. But And you have traders who, who find it better to trade in and out actively. Huh? You have traders who put on a huge position, and when they're decimated, they don't care. You don't notice it. They are so convicted. Yeah. But... I've also seen people with huge positions who are swearing the whole day on the floor. So you have all different types of traders. Charlie Munger, I don't know whether you would call him a trader or an investor, 
he's probably more a trader than Buffett, but they were both investors. But he has said, look, if in your life you haven't experienced three times where you lose 50% of your exposure, then you shouldn't be in the stock market. And that was him. The point though is, and whether it's in the stock market or in commodities, it isn't often about that percentage move. It is about that when such an extended move happens, it feels like it doesn't stop. That's often the, <laughs> the, the situation. And that requires mental stability. Yeah, it does. And, and it, there's two things I'd like to add. First of all, it takes a toll being a trader. It, because ultimately you're bridging mismatches in price, in time, mm. or whatever. You take over other people's risk and yeah. other people's fears as well. So yeah. as much as in, you know, you're a buffer in position, you also are a buffer in, in their emotions. And I think for me, I came to the conclusion at some point that the satisfaction that I got from the highs you know, didn't weigh up to the dissatisfaction of the lows. Yeah. Okay. And, and then I think that's a natural process. You don't see many traders above 50, really. <laughs> they become manager. Uh, but but just, if you're in your 30s, you can take on the world, right? Yeah. You can, yeah. That's how I experience yeah. it at least. It's only, yeah. There was also a bit of life where you have a lot of traveling and you go around, so you need the energy for that as well. And it comes with a lot of stress, right? So if you yeah. are in a position, even though you're, you have a strong conviction or whatever, it's quite stressful. You're going yeah. home, you're like... If you didn't stop out on it, then you take it onto the couch, right? And try to watch Netflix with a position uh, for the next morning. Like, yeah, you're yeah. always at risk. And that in itself is not necessarily healthy. And I would say the whole kind of mental health management yeah. around it is something that I think anyone aspiring yeah. to a job here should, in trading or should be very yeah. honest about. And yeah. it's okay, but uh, ultimately life's about more than being grumpy. Now, at the same time, I think... One of the things that I learned from trading and from these cycles is that in my life outside of the market, my private life, I could much better deal with setbacks because I, I knew the feeling and I also thought about, well, there is, I can trust my judgment. I can always bounce back. I trust my ability to rationally look at, at problems and there is always a solution. And that's, I think, even the direst, most dire situation that I have also been in a trade there was always something that you could do. So I came always out of a meeting or a room to the desk and it wasn't always pretty, but I knew at least I could do something. And that you, at least, let me speak for myself, but I took to my private life where whenever something happens which is difficult, I approach it like a trade. I analyze it, I don't get emotional, and even if there are bad choices, I make a decision and I trust myself, and I move on. Very simple example, for one minute, after the summer, I woke up, I looked outside, and my car was gone. Yeah, my car was stolen in front of our house. Now, you think, shit, I have a nice car, I work hard for it, but I bought a new car the same day. Because simply I thought, well, okay, this car is gone. Within six days, it's either dismantled, or it's in Africa on a boat. Yep, and you can start crying. I can start crying, but I'm stopped out. And I need a car. So, yeah. You bought but his old Audi. I bought his yeah, Audi R6. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, I knew it was well maintained. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, so, hey, how much time do we still have? Because I also want to touch base on Boudewijn, the, the entrepreneur. Because what I find very interesting about you is that you have more than 20 years trading under your belt. And now you're an entrepreneur. 
And I think in a very interesting uh, segment, you call it clean tech or you call it related to the energy transition. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, with pleasure. It was around three, four years ago that I, I made a decision for myself to stop with the active day-to-day trading. And I've done it in the form of, I give myself a six-month sabbatical, <laughs> wound down my position. That's when COVID uh, started, as extreme as the event was. It was actually a, a good time for reflection as well. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't look to the world through your commodity experience. If you learn to think that way, that's just the way you, you function as with many different jobs. It was a coincidence. I met someone who was talking about the fact that you can take waste plastic and you can melt it for simplicity's sake and get back petroleum. I never really thought much about the fact that plastic was made from petroleum, but immediately I thought, okay, so waste plastic is a massive problem in our world. Plastic itself is not necessarily an issue, but we just don't handle the waste well. Yeah. And there's a massive petroleum demand that you could sell into. So all you need is the right technology to convert one into the other. What I also liked about the idea is that you're actually contributing to a problem that we have as a society. Mm -hmm. And and as you can only spend your time once, I want to spend it on projects that give me a sense of purpose and uh, feeling that I'm contributing. So I did find a technology to convert plastic waste into oil. This is on the basis of pyrolysis, so effectively you heat it up without oxygen and then at a certain temperature it starts to form back to the molecular structure of petroleum or petroleum-like substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's how I became an investor and also involved in management uh, in the first years in a company called Prime. Mm-hmm. And that company has built a demonstration plant on industrial scale to do exactly that, mm-hmm. convert the plastic into petroleum and from there it's being picked up by the big refiners, Mm. petrochemical companies that then ultimately run it through a NAFTA cracker and make plastics again. Mm. Yeah, so... That sounds really cool. All these places where you have massive mountains, piles of plastic, that would be amazing, right? Well, that's also the opportunity because one thing is the technology is not very new Mm. nor sophisticated or complex. It's just something that as a society or as a business... There hasn't been much investment in that Mm -hmm. or need to invest in that. Conversely, what you see now is that we as a society uh, want to solve the plastic waste problem. There's strong EU regulation Mm -hmm. on it, EU targets. Consumer brands, they are going out, say, okay, we want to have all our packaging from recycled sources. Then you have the petrochemical industry, which puts itself big targets, million tons here, million tons there. So there is a huge amount of capacity needed, which simply does not exist at this moment. And at the same time, also because of regulation, we're saying, okay, putting it in landfill is not really okay anymore. Mm -hmm. Burning it, most plastics Mm -hmm. ultimately are burned if they come into the waste streams, is something we want to discourage. Exports to Mm -hmm. countries outside of Europe, Mm -hmm. we're blocking that in effect. So all that waste, piles up into our system, well, there's a strong demand there. So I've never seen yeah. such an opportunity set. Yeah. And that's what, apart from being doing something with purpose, also drives me from a business perspective because there is just almost endless potential so lo- for this. It seems so logic. This, yeah, right? and, and if you think that in the world, almost 400 million tons of plastics are produced each year and growing, in Europe alone, it's that number is 60 million tons. Mm-hmm. 
about half of it ends up in the waste stream. So that's 30 million tons. And if we then say in Europe that you know, we need 30% of that to be recycled, you know, that's 15 million tons of capacity that needs to be built somewhere. So it's going to happen. We see a clear shift in it. But at the same time, it's a new market, new technology, mm -hmm. and the whole supply chain needs to form itself around it as well. We see that happening now. And you um, collect your own plastics? or No, you have waste collections in, yeah. in all different countries. Systems are different everywhere. But ultimately, yeah, that plastic comes out somewhere mm -hmm. and needs to find a home. And currently, the main stream is going into what they call incineration, is being mm -hmm. burned either to recuperate some energy from it or not. And that's what the market is now geared towards. And that stream needs to be geared towards recycling capacity or in the case of that specific company, it's called advanced recycling because you're forming it back to its molecular structure. Yeah, so I find it an extremely exciting industry. There's a lot of parallels with agricultural commodity processing and you see commodity companies entering that space yeah. as well as the waste to energy space where rdf is made and that that's used as a replacement for yeah. coal for example yeah. in in a lot of industrial processes that's really exciting yeah and i'd say it's using the tool of commodity markets to actually get rid of a problem that yeah. we have no, it's fascinating and if you look at your career, and we're going to the end of the podcast, young people are always interested in a career. How do you enter the commodity industry and then how can a career look like? I think you are a great example of how varied it can be. Different commodities, corporate, entrepreneurship, and then ending up as an investor. It's fascinating. It's a great example. Yeah. So um, far, so good. Yeah, no, but, but uh, <laughs> so you, you see that, and that is... What I also like about it, the things you learn, you can apply in many things throughout your life, whether it is professionally or privately. Now, one of the things we usually end with is advice by someone like you for young people willing to move into this fascinating industry. No, yeah, with pleasure. And I think that's definitely also one of the, the reasons why I like the invitation, because at the start of my career, I didn't have a clue about commodities or, or the, <laughs> Me the whole magic world that is out there with yeah. so many dimensions yeah you have to know about it nor is there any specific kind of commodity that i could recommend because all commodities have their own yeah. their own show their own set of the highs and lows yeah, yeah it's everything the dynamics dynam yeah. they're all different but then again there's a lot of similarities so my advice would be try to get a job with mm. the big company or an established company yeah. in the commodity yeah. trading, and that can be many companies. If you talk about the biggest tier companies, I'd say that's more in the agricultural space or in the energy um, trading space. There's a, there's a number of big companies there as well. But the main thing is get into a team, see what physical commodity flows are. And it doesn't matter which commodity, because ultimately, if you want to move on in this field of work, it's impossible to predict where you'll end up. Mm. And what I've seen, the good commodity traders, they tend to gravitate towards one commodity. And they know a lot about a small part of the commodity world. Yeah. Those are the traders that I've really seen being on top of their game. Yeah, and then everyone is different. I'd say the commodity space is a lot of room for creativity, both if you're part of a bigger team or if you're on your own. 
But yeah, I start somewhere. As, as one of my old bosses would say is that, and they had worked at Cargill as well. They said, okay, you, know, you go to university and then you go to Cargill, that's your MBA. And after that, you'll see. And there's a big world out there. There's a massive opportunity. If you look at underlying trends, you get, mm. I don't think growth is, should be an objective in itself. But the fact that we as a world are growing our population massively, it implies that all these people need to be fed. Mm. They all you know, want to have a good life with all the economic consequences and commodity needs that come with that. If you think about Africa, where currently the population is 1.5 billion and it's projected to grow to 4 billion by 2000, by 2100. Mm-hmm. It just the scope of mm. possibilities are enormous. And then as a last point specifically, I think in Hill... Energy transition provides a massive set of opportunities, both on on trading, but also on the entrepreneurial side. And a way or part of that transition for me is circularity, where Mm -hmm. I think as a world, we should make better use of our resources and recycling is a big part of that. And yeah, as explained earlier, that world will also provide its opportunities. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Baudouin, for uh, being on our podcast. Um, My pleasure. I loved it from the beginning onwards, the, the conversation we had. And what Martijn also said, you have an amazing career. You've seen all the steps, definitely not a standard commodity career. Something yeah, that I think a lot of people uh, will aspire, something like that. But also what you said, I wrote it down here, is the best cure for high prices are high prices. So I will remember that one. <laughs> and <laughs> I really want to thank you very much for being here. That was a pleasure. Yeah, and when Alex and I had this idea about the commodity podcast... You think about who do you want to have as a guest, right? And you were one of the first names I came up with. This is only number five, many to go. And yeah, it speaks for you that we wanted to have you early on to show what this podcast is all about. And you didn't disappoint. Well, uh, glad I'm to very hear. Very happy, very happy. So thanks a lot, Bye. Good pleasure.